Welcome to the Manulife Exchange, an exclusive podcast created for you, our advisors, to take stock of the latest insights, news, and solutions that are driving our industry forward. We're on a mission to make decisions easier and lives better, and we believe in the power of your advice. So get ready to examine, redefine, and simplify insurance. Get ready to rethink insurance. Manulife's tax and estate planning team are a group of accountants and lawyers supporting advisors with complex cases using life insurance solutions. In our episodes, we bring real-life experience to you that we hope will inspire you to identify similar situations and explore insurance solutions. You've read the budget, seen a lot of articles, and read about the rules. Now you're going to hear our perspectives on a series of measures, including business succession, proposals for consultation on GAR, AMT, and some other targeted items. I'm Hemel Balsera. I'm part of Manny Life's Tax and Estate Planning Group on the individual insurance side. And with me today is Curtis Davis, who's on the investment side of Manny Life's business uh, from the tax side of things. So Curtis and I, we were in Ottawa for the federal budget on March 28th. We flew in on the 27th and it was such an awesome experience. Curtis, what'd you think of it, man? Oh, I mean, hey, this is my, I don't know, fourth or fifth. You start losing count probably old age too forgetful, but it's always an enjoyable experience. I, I've loved it every moment I've done. But in your case, Hamill, it was the, you were a first timer uh, in the lockup. So you got to experience the security check-in and uh, you had to give up your, your phone and turn it off, but also your watch, right? You're very worried about the number of steps you were not going to get counted that day. You were going to have to do some extra walking. Everything gets kind of sealed up. And you know, what, what did you think? What did you think seeing the check-in, seeing all the different uh, groups of, of practitioners and media that were, that were there uh, at, at the same place, you know, all of us dispersing into different rooms? Yeah, that's a great question, Curtis. Like we, for, for those of you who are familiar with Ottawa, it was at the West. It's so what what was interesting about that, it wasn't my first time at the hotel. I've been there for, for the KLU conference in, in, in the past. Anyways, we, we, we get there and like Curtis mentioned, you know, this was already an expectation of mine anyway. I knew this was going to happen, but like we had to turn off our phones. We turned off our iWatches. Uh, you know, I, it was the first time I ever tur turned off my Apple Watch other than the battery dying. Um, and it gets taped up and no longer able to access that device. So that was one of those things that was interesting. The other thing that was interesting was, was like, it was kind of like a mini reunion, just catching up with tax people from my, my previous lives, uh, previous firms that I worked with, or, or alternatively just people that you've encountered. So it was, it was actually nice to be in the room and, and, and also get a chance to share perspectives with those people as well. Yeah. And then, you know, at the beginning, they, when, you know, 11 o'clock hits, you know, and the announcements out, you know, ready, you were ready to go and they, they hand out all the physical books. Uh, on, on all the tables and say, okay, there's, you know, there's not going to be a digital version uh, that you're going to have. So you, you have your laptop, no internet. And, and you, you know, I, there was this gasp. I remember kind of in the room, like, are you serious? We're going to have to, there's nothing, nothing digital to work with. And, and then, you know, I think it was 20, 30 minutes later, they, they announced there, they were going to do that. And, and they handed out the USB sticks with all the PDF files. And, and I think there was a, a big sigh of relief. Um, but I, I do remember this from past budgets. There, there was always a sort of challenge with electrical outlets, as, as small as that seems. But imagine, you know, a few hundred people in the same room, all with laptops that, need, that they want to plug in. And this room had a particular shortage, like it was significantly less. And, you know, there's this uh, race to plug in a, you know, an extension cord. And I know at our table, right, we, the extension cord only had the ability to take one plug, right? <laughs> we were kind of rotating that around. Everybody was kind of, you know, balancing between battery and electrical uh, power. So, 
kind of kind of a, an interesting, you know, maybe addition to the environment uh, that we were in. Oh yeah, I agree. Like we we actually changed tables just so we could be closer to the outlet, and luckily we we found the finance person with the long orange cable cord that we could we could ultimately uh, find that last available outlet. And oh my god, it was it was such a such a uh, such a crazy adventure. But you know, it, overall it was it was it was fun. It was such a collegial environment. I'm appreciative of the fact that you were there and and, and helping me go through this process and, and us going through this process together. So no, thank you for that, Curtis. Oh yeah, no problem. It, it's, it's a five hours of, of pure fun and entertainment, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think the biggest thing too is, is I think our teammates were appreciative of the fact that, you know, we were able to draft up Manulife's article um, way in advance. And, and, and basically they didn't necessarily have to have as crazy of a late night that we normally do on most budget nights. So yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the nuggets, Curtis, that that dropped in there was this thing called alternative minimum tax. Do you want to maybe talk about that a little bit more in terms of like what what's changed, what's happening? Yeah, because it's interesting, right? Because it's probably a tax that I, I would think many people have maybe never even heard of because uh, it never really applies to, to most people in most circumstances, right? But it's been around since 1986. And it's this, this sort of alternate method of, of calculating your tax liability. Um, and if that method if generates a higher tax liability than kind of the way we're all used to, the normal way of doing things, then you have a tax liability. You have to pay tax at, at that amount. And I think under the current rules, you, you know, an example might be if you, you had to use your lifetime capital gains exemption on the sale of shares, you know, might put you in a position where AMT would take over and would apply. Um, so I think what the government's done there is they, they looked at that system and said, like, let's, let's revamp this and make it much more targeted at high income earners, right? Those kind of, you know, $300,000 a year and more and try and eliminate the risk that those that are normally say mid, low or middle income who might have a one-off event, one tax year, have it. So they're less likely to get caught by this tax rule and get surprised by it because they, they never deal with it. Right. So I, I think we saw that a nice way of that happening is, you know, increasing the basic exemption from 40,000 up to uh, what they anticipate will be about 173,000. Right. But that fourth federal tax bracket, uh, we saw a bit of a reduction in the, the amount of deductions or, or credits uh, that you can use under the AMT to reduce your tax liability. So increasing the amount that potentially is going to be taxed uh, at, under AMT if, if you are, are fall under it uh, and, and increasing the overall rate. It's just a flat tax rate, right? At, at 20 and a half percent. But, you know, the one thing that jumped out at me, I remember I kind of elbowed you there as soon as I saw it is the capital gains inclusion rate, you know, for AMT is normally is 80% uh, and it increased to a hundred percent. And I think of all the years, the predictions were we'd see an increase and the capital gains inclusion rate. Well, there you go. We finally got it. You know, maybe we can finally you know, put that speculation uh, to bed for a while uh, and get that kind of all out of our system. So we, we at least saw that as, as, as one thing. Um, but interestingly, capital losses, of course, those are still, you, know, you can only still use 50% of those to offset your capital gains for, for AMT purposes. I know you had a moment too, where you, you hit me like, you know, can you believe this? You know, what, what was that that jumped out at you when you were reviewing that? It was interest and carrying charges. So what's going to happen with that is, is there's going to be a 50% add back 
for interest in carrying charges. And where I see that being an issue is for clients who have done leveraged investing. So be it like for a stock portfolio, be it for real estate, be it for like even immediate finance arrangements on the insurance side at the individual level where you have big interest deductions soaking up your income, all of a sudden this can be problematic, right? And I do see this impacting, you know, a, a subset of clients who are highly levered, right? So that was my aha moment with the, with this AMT was just, you know, they, they, they snuck it in with like a whole bunch of other deductions, right? Like, you, you know, for medical expenses, a few other things. And, and, and at the end of the day, it was just kind of stuck in there. And, and, and that stuck out to me as probably the one thing that may negatively impact people who are affected by AMT. This is going to be one of those things that sneaks up on people, right? Yeah. And then, but AMT, right, of course, doesn't apply to corporations. Absolutely. On this specific issue, I, I wonder, like, is that going to maybe provide some renewed interest? People looking at, well, if I have, I don't know, we talked about rental income even potentially or, or whatever, are people going to maybe look at, does it make sense to put stuff like are my investments in a corporation if this is going to be a problem? Like, are we going to see a, a renewed interest there where that given how high the tax rates are at the corporate level on passive income, interest kind of faded here over the last few years. Yeah, and, and I, I do think that that might be something that might be considered if, for example, somebody's highly levered, like we talked about, just maybe doing a rollover of assets, right, into a corporation potentially. <laughs> that isn't necessarily as simple of a process as just us saying a rollover, you still have to get valuations. If it's real estate, there may be some land transfer tax to consider, right? There's a bunch of different considerations on that front, but still, I do think people's uh, behaviors may change. Curtis, the silver lining with AMT is it's a temporary tax, right? Yeah, because like under the, the existing rules that, uh, you know, you have up to seven years you to carry forward and, and essentially you kind of get it back, right? <laughs> uh, that hasn't changed. So it, it, I mean, imagine if they made this a permanent tax, they took away that seven year carry forward uh, related to AMT. That would have been big news. That has not happened. Just and for the listeners, just to be clear, when we say temporary tax, what it means is to the extent that you have AMT in the, the current year, um, what happens is, is in the future year, let's just say, for example, your regular tax bill is higher than your AMT calculation. You can actually offset the tax that would otherwise have to be paid with the AMT that you previously paid. Right. And then do that every year for up to seven years until that AMT amount is gone. Absolutely. Which is obviously the desired result. So, yeah. So I think that that is the silver lining. As much as there was a ton of change and there might be some people that are impacted, the fact that that carry forward still remains, I, I think is, is a positive overall at the end of the day for that, for AMT. So Hemel, there was, there was a couple of big items, I think, for business succession, which is something I, I think you and your group deal with um, quite a bit on, on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, section, you know, 84.1, are surplus strips dead? <laughs> That's such a funny question. It's funny, like over the last couple of days, so the budget was on Tuesday, March 28th, Yesterday, I probably got half a dozen questions on surplus trips being dead. And the simple answer to that question is, is no, because it, it, but that being said, there's a subset that's going to be negatively impacted. Let me elaborate. So a surplus trip is effectively, um, you know, pulling out money from your corporation at capital gains rates. Uh, rather than dividend rate. For, for those of you on the insurance side, you're familiar with the pipeline transaction. You could do an intervivals pipeline. Another form is, is you could push down assets into a subco and trigger some gains that way. 
And then there's also this, this way of unlocking your lifetime capital gains exemption using the existing provisions that were introduced in Bill C-208. Those were very rarely used in my world, right? So I never really saw much activity. So the traditional surplus strip is alive. But if we kind of transition into really the new rules in 84.1 that are being proposed uh, that are going to be effective January 1st, 2024, I actually like what they're doing because what they've done is, is they've acknowledged that there's going to be a couple of different ways of doing these transactions that allow a parent to unlock their lifetime capital gains exemption and also ensure that 84.1, which is a rule that recharacterizes capital gains into dividends, doesn't apply. And these two types of transactions are what they call immediate transfers, which is basically you have to do this within a couple of years, or a gradual intergenerational transfer where you do it over five to 10 years. And what they've done as part of this is they've identified about five different hallmarks, including the transfer of the control of the business, transfer of economic interest in the business, transfer of management of the business, the child retains control, and child the child works in the business. And if you hit these criteria, now 84.1 is not going to apply. And this is really helpful because at the end of the day, the whole purpose of the original Bill C-208 document was just to really uh, equalize or give intergenerational transfers the same treatment as a third party sale. So I do see this from a policy perspective, a really good thing in terms of keeping businesses in the family and also being a really, really positive thing in terms of encouraging intergenerational transfers and allowing family members to unlock their lifetime capital gains exemption. Kalu made a submission to uh, to finance. And, and what was interesting about that is, is it acknowledged that there was not only immediate sales, but these gradual transitions that happen. And I'm happy that finance has ultimately reflected the fact that gradual transitions can happen and they've incorporated that into those hallmarks. From your perspective, this is a good thing. Like we shouldn't focus on the negative here so much as this, this is good. Oh, absolutely. This is very, very positive, I think, for, for families um, in, in the long run. And Hema, what about employees? You know, employees maybe want to take over a company, uh, take over a corporation, the employee ownership trust. Yeah, that's a good one. Like I I find this one was interesting to me for for that. That was actually in our budget write up. That was actually the first section I tackled because I was so curious about this because one of the things that happened in this budget was like Curtis mentioned, there's this introduction of this new concept called the employee ownership trust, which is basically a trust that would hold a business or corporate shares on behalf of employee beneficiaries of the trust. And the whole point of it is, is it's going to ultimately make distributions out of the trust to the beneficiaries and provide them with cash flow as well. And what's interesting about this is, is for business owners, this provides them another option in terms of selling the business, because what they've done with these rules is, is they've introduced some flexibility to implement these employee ownership trusts. They've taken the capital gains reserve. So the capital gains reserve previously allowed you to, you know, pay uh, capital gains taxes over five years, potentially, if you received installments, they extended that period to being 10 years. The other thing is, is they've introduced some exceptions to shareholder loans. Uh, so, so now the, 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 the corporation can actually lend the money to the trust and then the trust can use that money to you know, buy out the original owner. They've made an exception to that. They extended, because normally with, with the shareholder loan rules, 
if it's not repaid within one taxation year of incurring the loan, it becomes an income inclusion. They've extended that period to 15 years. And then the other thing that they've done with this as well is, is they've, they've created an exception to the 21 year rule. Because as we all know, a trust is deemed to dispose of all of its assets at fair market value on the 21st anniversary. For the purposes of, of these rules, you're also excluded. Where I do see some challenges, Curtis, as we look through the legislation, one of the things that occurred to us was really, you know, these trusts can never roll out the shares of the business to the beneficiaries. Where this becomes problematic is the employee isn't really a genuine owner of the business. They're just a beneficiary of the trust. And I think the other issue that presents itself is there aren't any transition provisions. So if somebody passes away on death, somebody no longer becomes an employee because of disability or just leaves the company, there's no buyout mechanism. So effectively, this is just providing them with cash flow. So I actually, what was interesting was, is like in the budget room, they have representatives from finance available. And what I did, I was telling you this too, like was, was, was I ended up going to talk to the person in finance just to ask, are there any transition provisions? Like, you know, especially death for us in the insurance industry, my mind goes straight to buy, sell insurance. And really his comment back to me is, is the way it's drafted right now is there isn't transition. You're either an employee or you're not. And effectively you're now in a position where we're not going to necessarily have that. But he did say that they're open to talking about that. So there is going to be a consultation period on this. And I do, I, I do think that that's something that as, as an industry, we should maybe get the government to consider because otherwise it's going to really, really limit the scope of the application of these, right? From a long-term perspective. Well, I, I would think so. I mean, as an employee, if I was a beneficiary, you're telling me under any condition that I leave, maybe through no fault of my own, if it was, you know, death as an example, then whatever interest or whatever equity I've accumulated is gone. It's, it's not mine. Absolutely. It stays in the trust, right? So um, yeah, absolutely. I would see that as a, that's a huge, huge issue. And, and hopefully, yeah, that's just more room for uh, discussion and consultation, and hopefully uh, some legislation in the future to, to get that, that resolved. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So Hamel, like another big one that came up, well, big and small, I guess all at the same time, right, is GAR, um, General Anti-Avoidance Rules. Uh, so there, there was some proposals in the budget to make some amendments or, or, or some changes on, on this front, but the proposals are really only out there for consultation, right? So it's like, here's what we're thinking we'd like to do, and then give us some feedback by May 31st of this year before we, we put something a little maybe more concrete or, or more finalized uh, on the table. Um, what, what, did you, what did you think of some of the, the proposals anyway, maybe at a very high level, what the government's or finance is looking to do here? Yeah. So, I mean, if, if we take a step back, I, I think part of the reason why they're, they're, they're exploring this is, is, is effectively there was a thought initially when GAR was introduced that it had a lot of teeth. And what ended up happening was is as jurisprudence ultimately uh, presented itself and court cases went through, what quickly became evident is, is the way GAR was, was actually written, it wasn't actually doing the job that it was supposed to do. <laughs> it's like it lost its teeth, it had gum disease, and this is kind of giving fresh teeth to GAR, right? So I think in some ways it's one where uh, the government recognized the current drafting of the legislation isn't really doing the intended job, right? So as part of this whole 
uh, GAR consultation period, I, 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 I think it's, it's one where they recognize there's going to be sensitivities to this because you're basically changing like a, a critical rule. And I, I think in some ways it's interesting how they're going on at it at a collaborative approach, as opposed to just dropping the gloves, you know, <laughs> but, but in other ways, I find it interesting as well. They're looking at adding some uh, preamble and then changing the, the, the transaction standard and, you know, from being the primary purpose to like one of the main purposes, and then also introducing economic substance test, introducing a penalty and extending the normal reassessment period. So all of these things are going to ultimately give GAR more teeth, but at the same point in time, there really wasn't any draft legislation. So it's, it's, it's almost like one of those things where it's like a wait and see, but as a tax community, we probably want to be proactive because if you're not proactive, you could end up holding the bag with something you don't really want in the bag. They actually use the example um, in the budget document about a TFSA. You know, if somebody has a, a taxable investment portfolio and they contribute it to their TFSA, say in kind, right, uh, in, in order to you know, avoid future tax and saying, you know, if you, if you took the, the very literal application of GAR, that would potentially be caught under that but they they say it doesn't work in a sense because hey that isn't that exactly what we want people to do <laughs> that's the whole point of the tfsa right uh, so i i guess it, like for me as much as that was an oversimplified example of course guard never applies to that i i, I kind of it gave me that sense or it just reinforces to me what the overarching application is maybe supposed to be like how broad it can be uh, um, and, and so, yeah, if they're, if it's not getting the job done and, and it's almost like you're, it's too easy to get out of in a sense, I, I hope that I'm not framing that wrong, but then I, I can see the government's desire to want to, uh, make it a, a little bit more, uh, you know, captivating in terms of, of getting the, the intended tax revenue and, and stopping or disincenting certain behavior, uh, whatever the case would be. Absolutely. And I, and I think it's, it, it's, it's also for those who are doing aggressive transactions, I think it's a moment to pause. I think it's also, you know, this is where traditional good planning on the insurance side, just kind of like, you know, a simple thing like a corporate estate bond or leveraged insurance, like, you know, where you're doing it inside a corporation and the corporation's a borrower, things like that, where it's, it, it's more traditional planning are going to be generally safe. It's more the aggressive planning that may be negatively impacted. And, and this is every, this isn't just individuals. This is, this is anybody and everybody under, right? So, uh, you know, this one kind of covers the gamut of, of potential taxpayers or tax filers. So, you know, one of those stay tuned, uh, but, you know, for me, I, I'm not going to dive into the details at this stage because those are probably going to change uh, as the consultation period goes forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so Curtis, one of the other things that, that, that got a lot of attention was this RESP, the Registered Education Savings Plan. Do you want to maybe talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, there were a couple. Uh, one that came out uh, actually the night before the budget, so a bit of a spoiler alert. Um, but I, I would actually argue that one's the probably, the, even though it got more attention, I, I would say it's probably the smaller of the two uh, changes. So this is the uh, increase of the 13-week uh hard cap that is on um, educational assistance payments. So when uh, the beneficiary of the RSP, the or RESP, the student uh, starts school uh, in the first 13 weeks, if they're full-time, you could only take out 5,000. If they were part-time, you could only take out $2,500 of an educational assistance payment. You could take out as much capital, so the contributions that were made as you wanted. 
um, that those limits now have been increased to 8,000 and 4,000 respectively. And, and I think this cap was always in place, uh, you know, just to prevent that very quick depletion of the of the educational assistance payment balance uh, in a very, very short period of time, specifically the government grants uh, and incentives that are, are in the RESP. Because if you don't get those out of the RESP through a, an educational assistance payment and you make the payment out to a subscriber, so that which is typically the parent uh, or a grandparent even perhaps in the future, um, you can, you know, the the AIP accumulated income payment consists of the investment income and growth, which is fine, but not the grant. The grant money in that case gets sent back to the government. So you get a hundred percent clawback. So I think that's the, the genesis of the cap, but from a planning perspective, you know, once you get past the 13 weeks, that hard cap disappears. So as we've seen many times in the past, then, you know, maybe that second term comes up, tuitions due, you know, you take a bigger percentage of that as an EAP payment and a smaller percentage as a as capital. And then uh, as you know, if they're in year two, three, four, whatever the case is, you, you know, you, you have total flexibility and you can make sure you get that that EAP portion out while the student is in school, get it taxed in their hands, which is hopefully next to nothing with the personal exemption and the tuition credits even by themselves. You kind of roll from there as far as the the, the RESP. But I'd argue the second option is for, for the people that are affected here, I, I think it's going to be one of those like it's about time that this was available. Um, and that was is allowing separated or divorced spouses to open RESPs as joint subscribers. So under the current rules, only uh, married or common law partners could open RESPs and be joint as joint subscribers. Once you separate or divorce, you can no longer do that. You have to open individual accounts. So this was problematic, say, uh, you know, there's a breakdown in a marriage, you have a joint subscriber RESP, for whatever reason you want to switch to another financial institution, you, you couldn't open another joint subscriber account because you're no longer spouses. You would have to open two separate ones, right? Or if, they, if you start RESPs after separation or divorce, then you have both parents opening their own RESP and they're throwing in contributions separately. And it becomes a bit of the left doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And sometimes you get frustration from one or both that they're not getting the grant money from the government, the matching grant that they expected, because the government is looking at both accounts and, and matching the grant. You know, the first $500 a year in grant money is going to the first $2,500 that gets in the accounts in an RESP each year. So it, it can eliminate some of that frustration, I think. And if, if things are amicable, then the, then the parents can work together, be joint even after a separation or divorce and, and coordinate their contributions, maximize their grants, kind of have a more coordinated savings plan for their children's future education. So I, I think if that's if you're in that boat, uh, this is you know small, but I think this is a very nice flexibility and value add for you with an RESP. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds like that. And it definitely sounds like it provides a lot more flexibility. So Curtis, I, I know there was one more nugget that you wanted to talk about, and it's, it's really a passion of yours. Uh, I'll maybe let you articulate what that is. Yeah, so th there was a little nugget about automatic tax filing. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, this originates back, I was watching uh, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah years ago. He was interviewing the Prime Minister of Estonia, and they were talking about tax returns, of all things. If you're familiar with the show, it's more of a satirical late night news 
type show, typically very political. Um, so it doesn't normally get into taxes of all things. And anyway, the prime minister of Estonia was bragging at the time that you could file a tax return on your phone automatically um, in, well, it, as Trevor Noah pointed out to him, in five minutes was the average time. And the prime minister actually bro boasted that they had done some recent updates and you could do it in as little as three minutes on your phone. And as I'm hearing them talk about this, I'm thinking to myself, like, why can't we do that here in Canada? Maybe three or five minutes is ambitious, but why can't we have an automatic tax filing system of some sort? Um, so when this started popping up and the government's, you know, right now it's, it's a very narrow focus on lower income Canadians, specifically those who for, for a multitude of reasons don't file a tax return. But if they did, they would qualify for a number of different benefits that would probably be very needed cash for them. So the government's trying to use this as a, as a way to, yes, increase tax filing compliance, but also to increase the benefit payouts to those Canadians who need it most. It's a very, very small dipping of your toe in the ocean kind of approach. But, you know, as, as I kind of brainstorm or, you know, get lost in my imagination because, you know, that's the fun things I, I think about, I guess, compared to what other more interesting people think about. I just wonder of what that possibility could really be. Imagine doing your tax return directly with CRA online in, in, in like 10 minutes because they, they automatically fill it. You, you just kind of fill in what's missing. Everybody agrees it's done. And I don't know, two, three weeks later, you have your refund in your bank account. Like that would be amazing to me. Absolutely. The future is bright. Thanks for listening to this episode and follow us for more. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Manulife Exchange. We're driving the insurance industry to innovative solutions for our customers and the communities we serve are at the forefront of everything we do. Rethinking insurance is what we do. How about you? For more information on the future of insurance and for more episodes, please visit manulife.ca forward slash the Manulife Exchange. Thanks for tuning in. Copyright Manulife. This podcast, including case studies and support materials, is for general information purposes only and is not specific to any one individual or case. This podcast shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, tax, accounting, or other advice. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and are subject to change based on legislative, case law, market, and other conditions that may change during the course of recording and publishing this podcast. Support materials reference may be incomplete if viewed on their own and should be referenced within the context of the applicable podcast episode. Individuals should seek the advice of professionals with respect to this information and any action taken. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from the use of information in this podcast. The manufacturer's life insurance company, Manulife, is the issuer of Manulife insurance contracts. Manulife. Manulife and Stylized M Design and Stylized M Design are trademarks of the manufacturer's life insurance company and are used by it and by its affiliates under license.